Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. Rich. Hello. And Chris. What up? If you were listening to our episode last week, you know that this is the second part of the Punching Out Genius Awards, where we're honoring the dumbest bosses of the year. Now, one definition I had for genius, why we're calling these people geniuses, is that they have a commitment to fixing what isn't broken, and that leads to them harming not just the workers under them, but the bottom line that they are supposed to care about. And I think that defines especially the people who ran Deadspin into the ground, who are our geniuses in the category of media. I think Deadspin's probably like the most interesting example of all of like the media layoffs, because I think this past year we've had like 7,400 media jobs lost by whatever like measure they include. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're just including people who are writers, but that's a pretty large number regardless, mm -hmm. and especially if they're only counting people who are writing for some of these online outlets. And... I think that's been interesting because I think, you know, like you said, th this isn't something that's like about like market principles. This right. isn't like layoffs that we've seen here locally or in like manufacturing in the decades past where mm -hmm. it's like, okay, we're reducing our overhead so we can make more profit and give money to fewer people, which is obviously brutal and, you know, a horrible way to run an economic system. But it does follow some sort of a consistent logic. Whereas this, we're moving into a period now, especially in media, and media has this unique responsibility of at least supposed to be about um, confronting powerful people, <coughs> analyzing and criticizing what they're doing. So it's moving more almost like in the realm of using capital as like social control. And yeah. one of the most, like, one of the more notable Deadspin writers, he primarily covered the baseball and football. And I, you know, I loved his segment he did called uh, Let's Remember Some Guys, David Roth. Yeah. He went on the podcast Trapo Trap House and actually elaborated on this dynamic of like, like, wow, we were actually doing fine. And this guy, Jim Spanfeller, came in and started imposing like these tight controls on like a dress code and like how it's no longer about like how do we make more money. It's just like how do we fit this kind of weird narrow vision of one guy. So it's like a more tyrannical workplace that's to the whims of like what one guy wants or what one guy feels that they need. Jim Jim Spanfeller managed to do what for years uh, every kind of millionaire associated in some way with sports wanted to do, which was kill Deadspin, you know? Mm -hmm. This was a site that it, its first slogan was, I think it was still its slogan when it mm -hmm. got run into the ground, was sports news without favor, access, or discretion. They prided themselves on basically putting everything out there and both for better and for worse, humanizing these figures that were seen as uh, unreachable, right? And uh, team owners, players, coaches, everyone at some point had a story about how much they hated that there was this site that was able to say these things, write these things about them without suffering uh, repercussions in terms of profit or what have you. And what it turned out to be is that instead of having people within the world of sports complain enough to get the site killed, all you had to do was bring in a humorless uh, private bureaucrat yeah. Yeah, from outside the world of media almost entirely to do that. I, yeah, I just want to add, uh, building on that, that this was a complete ideological hit job. Uh, what made Deadspin great, and I think most maybe you don't realize this, it was such a novel critique of media and sports and how sports was covered at a time when really it was just ESPN and its really cozy relationship with uh, the owners and the leagues and Deadspin provided this alternative uh, way of looking at uh, sports and the way sports fit in the culture and society. And then Spanfeller and his private equity ghouls came in and not only killed Deadspin ultimately, but also Splinter, the the, pol the right. left wing politics website under whatever Gawker was uh, G slash O. Yeah, that's what it is. You're right. Yeah, going into an election year, uh, talking about you know 
slashing your bottom line, you know, having this popular website that covers politics get killed. And then you have Deadspin uh, diet slow death despite being profitable, despite being popular. It was a website I would clock into every morning. So it, it was the rare website that people still went to instead of just following links from Twitter. They right. like, typed it into the URL bar or they had a bookmark. It was it. Another thing Roth mentioned too in that interview with Chapo was that their whole thing is that they are supposed to do like everyone's doing sports. Like sports are everywhere. If you just yep. want to go, like there's a hunters. I don't know, at least six to eight major outlets you can just solely rely on who comprehensively cover every sport and even every team individually if you want. So the whole point is that, like, no, we're going to do that, but we're going to do it into a perspective of shoehorning it into politics and culture and how it fits into, like, the broader kind of trajectory of our lives and our society. <laughs> so, and I, that's obviously what they were doing and what made them unique. So anyone who isn't concerned about what they're doing politically, like um, it seems like Spanfeller and people like him were felt like, and also uh, Peter Thiel, who teamed up with Hulk Hogan to basically end Gawker when, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was wrong for Gawker to leak a sex tape that is not, you know, We something. might be getting off time. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> well, we're Well, no, I don't think yeah. we are because there was a perception that Deadspin was in trouble because they were in the Gawker mix, even mm-hmm. though they actually weren't in trouble. So Deadspin was still a very viable, healthy company. Yeah. Um, like the article that you know we were looking over before this, talked about how like no, like we were still getting page views, we were still occupying a unique yeah. space. Like you guys said, how we people still clocked in. You saw all over online after Deadspin was gone, people saying like, oh, I still have Deadspin. I still type it in, and I and it's not there. And you know now it's like, what's going to take that space? Because Barstool is not challenging people. These other outlets aren't just SB Nation. Is You've seen a lot of, like, former Deadspin writers move on to Vice or other freelance sort of, you know, gigs, wh- whatever work they can find. Um, I do want to take a moment to just lay out what exactly happened here, what Jim Spanfeller's role in all this was, because some of our listeners might remember his name from the episode we did discussing private equity and mm-hmm. the role uh, Great Hill Partners had in shutting down Splinter. It was only, like, a week or two after that that – Deadspin's writers left en masse to, as a protest of what his rule over their site had become. He had issued this edict that they were to stick to sports, which is a, a phrase that they had mocked almost as an ethos on the site regularly, the idea that sports had nothing to say about broader society. And it's an inspiring show of solidarity that all of these workers decided to give up what was a pretty good job. A union job. mm -hmm, To say, no, this is not how we're going to do it. You know, we know better than you how things are done here. I think it's also important to note that Deadspin uniquely got to write about its own demise as it was happening. Um, There was that article uh, by Megan Greenwell, who was editor at the site. Until about August, about two months before. Right all this happened <clears throat> and that that was one of the reasons she mm-hmm. left that the the takeover was going to happen and reporters after she left were able to sort of pick up that ball and run with it of showing exactly what ownership was doing because one mm-hmm. one of the things that we talked about when we talked about private equity uh biting the heart out of media was that this is what happens once billionaires finally figure out like exactly how tech savvy they have to be to take out all of this new media that had emerged. Mm -hmm. And they sort of took advantage of the chaos and confusion that the takeover was causing. And like, quite frankly, the lack of intelligence or expertise that people like Jim Spanfeller have in actually running a site like Deadspin, they used that to their advantage. And so they were able to lay out the gory details for everybody, um, which is very fortunate for us because we got to bear witness to it minute by minute. So we could actually see exactly how the site was being taken apart and demolished rather than finding out, as happened with so many other outlets, essentially after the fact. Mm -hmm. So we got to see exactly how craven and how completely driven by uh, what uh, Chris was talking about, by the ethos that was driving this, we got to see it in real time. I want to read a bit from this uh, New York magazine article about the demise of Deadspin, uh, quote, what former staffers are still puzzled by is why Great Hill was so aggressive about changing an operation that, by all indications they could see, was doing well as a business. 
There was no crisis to solve. The site was healthy and doing interesting journalism, said Megan Greenwell, who spent 18 months as the site's editor-in-chief before resigning in August. It's not clear to me why that was not good enough. Greenwell and others recall trying to make the case to Spanfeller and GO editorial director Paul Maidman, sometimes using hard data, that the site's success was tied to its broad editorial scope. Deadspin was always one of the easiest sites to pitch and sell, Jillian Schulz, a former director of sales development at Gawker, tweeted last week. We, ra- we rarely sold campaigns because the advertiser wanted to align with sports. They wanted the audience and the lifestyle sections. The fact that this wasn't abundantly clear to Jimbo escapes me. If he can't effectively monetize Deadspin, well, good luck out there, bud. Yeah, just to, to build on that and to build on what um – Noah was just saying, you know, in, in Deadspin, you know, there, I'm thinking of an old journalistic cliche, don't pick fights with people who buy ink by the gallon or by the barrel. <laughs> it's kind of the same process. By, there's a, even though this is just a pure act of malice and destruction, there is value in being able to see minute by minute what happens when private equity ghouls decide to strip uh, valuable assets for parts. And the Deadspin writers were able to present to us, you know, in, in clear day of light of day, uh, what had happened already to Toys R Us, for instance, uh, where there is this profitable company uh, that got taken over by uh, finance bros, stripped of parts, and then utterly gutted in the name of short-term profit maximization. Um, and, that, and that's what happened to Deadspin. Jim Spanfeller didn't care that he had a profitable operation. What he cared about uh, was uh, taking apart Deadspin, stripping it of assets, and then selling off what the husk that loading remained it up with lo- annoying loading ads. it up with debts yeah. and ads and then sending it off to the next guy uh in you know reduced form once he and his uh his cronies because that was another thing Megan Grenwell pointed out was that everyone Spanfeller hired were uh just his white male middle-aged friends uh from from the business once once he and his cronies had looted everything they could you know they were just going to sell it and move on like Sports Illustrated is the other like major outlet that's mm-hmm. been affected by all this because like Sports Illustrated has never really been expressed any kind of like ideology. They never that's an outlet it, that has. It's stuff. almost the opposite of what Deadspin was. It's right. this very respectable publication. Oh, yeah, and they've been around for you know sixty, seventy years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only time they ever delved into anything remotely political is maybe an individual profile of an athlete, an in-depth article on like the social conditions they faced, maybe right. an opinion piece at the end, you know, back you know, sometimes when Rick Riley was still there and still good and funny. And it was a long time. And that's something where it was a very long, it feels forever ago now. <laughs> and as someone who subscribed to them for like 15 years, probably like late nineties, about 2013, mm-hmm. you, especially the early part of the tens, late two thousands, you see the magazine like getting thinner and thinner and thinner and all of a sudden they weren't even giving me the basic things that I was relying on them for anymore like they would do these awesome season previews they started to sell the season previews of each of these leagues as like a separate issue like all of these things that started to weaken the product uh, all in the name of you know reducing overhead so it was at least something that was less probably of a social discipline thing like what Deadspin and it was more of like reducing overhead but it is an example of how like in the name of reducing overhead, you are harming the long-term product. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this also in uh, local news as well, um, where they start to move away. And like a big thing that they all do is, oh, let's focus on weather. So you start to move away from actually uh, confronting local politicians and people in power to just constantly ex- turning your news division into being almost like a weather subdivision. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what people, that is a big part of what local news does, but it's also something that's not part of the totality of what they should be doing. So there is the other dynamic too, where it is not necessarily just about um, enforcing some kind of ideology on an outlet to the point where they're dead, um, but also just like a very, like the financialization almost of media companies to a degree where you're focusing on these kind of short-term goals to where you're starting to lose subscribers. You're seeing this in the local paper with DNC. I mean, my parents tried very hard to stay loyal to them. Um, and other people their age, um, but you always hear them say like, "Oh, like there's just nothing in it anymore. Like, why am I spending?" And uh, and well, the price is going up. I, I'd like our media to be more critical of the weather for one. <laughs> I agree. And yeah, the, the the DNC is what is it? Just high school coverage of this high school football uh, coverage at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. pretty good at that. That's about the only articles I can access on the site that don't get paywalled. High school football. 
So well, because your grandparents want to read about their grandson yeah. or granddaughter playing yeah. a game, you know. Um, I want to talk about Sports Illustrated and this company called The Maven, which is now in charge of Sports Illustrated. We we discussed them on a past episode. And, and we discussed the people who licensed them to publish y- Sports yes, Illustrated. Yes, the, the Authentic Brands Group, which is just a fantastic ah, name for name. a company. Um, and what's happened with Sports Illustrated is that their new owners, the new operators at The Maven have decided that Instead of being, you know, a respected outlet for journalism, they're going to go down the route of SB Nation and have a whole bunch of team-centered websites that are run effectively by unpaid staffers and, Mm -hmm. you know, eager college students who want, you know, their first crack at a media job. And I would take this moment to note that currently SB Nation's independent contractors are actually in a fight for better pay and mm-hmm. benefits from Vox Media, um, which has started taking some uh, steps to curtail that in light of California's recent freelancing law. Mm-hmm. They're using that as an excuse, of course. And the Vox Union has been strangely milquetoast on defending yeah. the rights of uh, these people, some of whom are now union members. Uh, so solidarity with them as well as they try to uh, yeah. get what's due to them. What you've seen in just a few months since the Maven has taken over has been a degradation of Sports Illustrated's quality. There was a piece on what they call the Irish Maven, their Notre Dame football website, which was just laughably bad, and it came out that it was written by a high school student. Oh, it was? Yes. Oh, I didn't... Okay, so funnily enough, when you sent... So, full disclosure, Mm -hmm. I often read high school students' writing, Mm -hmm. and when Ryan sent me this article some time ago, I read it through and I kind of went, you know, this is, I mean, it's not good, it's below average, but it's not horrifying. And then I realized to my horror that it was not meant to be high school level writing. So finding out that it was in fact a high schooler writing, it does make me feel a little bit better. About the experience? It's a lot of so, it's, oh. so Notre Dame is actually a very precocious uh, SB Nation website then. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of like saturation, right? Like this is how they get away with, you know, I mean, even outside the realm of freelancers, even just people are actually employees paying like very low wages right. because mm-hmm. they know there's so many people because it's like considered to be like a cool thing to get into. Right? Yeah. Yes. Definitely. I mean, you know, I'm someone, like I said, like I'm someone who was guilty of that. Like I went into that and I was like, this could be, this is something I'm good at. It could be fun. It's challenging. And there's so many people who think like that. They can that there's and people who are dying to get into it that they will work for free for a while. Um, I did that. I wrote for these very ob- obscure like sites just run by young mm-hmm. people, and you just put yep. stuff out just so an internship or another job notices you, mm-hmm. and because it looks official and it looks like mm-hmm. you can write coherently, and. We moved to a model where there's so much saturation of that to where these institutions, I mean, SB Nation's always been run like that, let's be real. But these institutions like Sports Illustrated now are moving to that kind of model. And, you know, it really, it only works to the benefit of the people who are running them and who are buying them. Because not only from the market perspective of reducing overhead, but also from, you know, these are not people who are going to be very willing to fight back on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're constantly on the verge of being unemployed, if they're constantly feeling like they have to prove themselves. Yeah. I want to read this quote from uh, somebody at the Ma- from Maven founder and chief executive James Heckman. It's in an article in the Great Washington name. Post last, Heck mo- that guy. last week. <laughs> uh, quote, what became obvious to us was that SI's most senior previous leadership team were correcting, collecting outrageous salaries but making no effort to compete. They didn't have the courage or perhaps authority to make even the most obvious decisions to pivot the strategy. He told the post in an email. We continue to be shocked about the state of the business as we peel away layers, and so are moving boldly and decisively in parallel. Of course, that makes everyone uncomfortable. What does that mean? It's a wonderful mishmash of marketing speak. I think think Spanfeller and uh, Heckman, was that the name? I think these two both represent a new kind of boss because you don't just see these people at the helm of media companies or at the helm of traditional businesses. You see them everywhere because leadership speak is leadership speak regardless of the industry that you're in. And... You know, it used to be that if you were uh, put in charge of an enterprise, you at least had to pretend like your decisions were going to result in some kind of profit for what you're doing. Or that there was other input. Yes. And, well, 
But now all you have now this kind of mishmash allows you to even when you're running a site into the ground pretend that you're some kind of bold new leadership even when your numbers look abysmal compared to how they were before you took over it allows you to escape blame it's there's an amazing we we have reached the point of this where because these people are all talking to each other that's really who that statement is for it's not for the normal people it's not for mortals like us um other people who read that go, yes, yes, that sounds uh, that sounds exactly right. That makes a lot of sense to me. Also, a uh, professional boss. I think it's like this: the spread of. I think a lot of these guys see like uh, like the Silicon Valley culture that kind of started in the '90s of like these kind of like singular figures who mm-hmm. are like these. Oh, I'm yeah. going to transform this company, and this company is going to be this extension of my personality. It's going to be made in my image. That's yes. right, because and doesn't you're that in normal workplaces now. Is it – it's the CEO of Authentic Brands Group. Levinson, com- was it? Maybe. Who compares uh, Heckman to Steve Jobs. Yes. And calls him a savant. Uh, that's what's happening, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Like I don't have like research on this, but like just from being you know in the field and seeing how – and this isn't something that's happening everywhere. Like there are bosses who, you know, at least are, they're not trying to impose like their personal preferences on like – the entire workplace, um, but it is a thing that happens, and I worked under someone like that, um, the general manager at Channel Ten, and that's a thing that's happening more and more, where you have like like the tyrannical workplace where it's like, you know, this one guy, if they're not doing things to his liking, whether or not it's about making money or whether or not it's about um, improving like this the brand of the company mm-hmm. and sticking with what it's done prior to this person being there. Um, it's just more about like, no, I want to be the guy that this company is about and everyone else just kind of like helps me get there and I'll pay you and maybe keep you happy at best. Allow me to quote myself, management is when your neuroses become everyone else's problem. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about how this, how all these changes at Sports Illustrated are impacting, you know, the workers, the people who should be the focus here. Uh, Efforts to find slightly more experienced writers have brought their own clumsiness. According to two people with knowledge of the outreach, Maven has asked the spokespeople in college athletic departments, the institutions SI is supposed to be covering, to recommend potential hires. According to one journalist who covers Oklahoma football for a local newspaper, a Maven recruiter didn't seem to know what state he worked in. Inside the SI offices, morale is deteriorating, Staffer said. A number of video journalists were recently moved to the headquarters of The Street, Staffers said, only to, dis- <laughs> That's right. only to discover that there weren't enough computers and that most of them didn't that, have video editing. Thing, yeah, right? I forgot okay. that site the still street, existed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Most of them didn't even have video editing software. The magazine editing staff, story editors, designers, and photo editors, is down to around 10, about a third of what it was in 2014 when the magazine was weekly, according to two staffers who did a mass ed tally. The entire copy editing staff, eliminated in the October layoffs, worked its last days this well, month. Well, you had to expect that. I mean, nobody has copy editors anymore. That That's... The, the the need to present a product that is, like, properly checked for, I don't know, factual information, for clear readability, for any sort of thing like that, that has gone down completely just every tube. It's really, like, it's pretty obvious, more obvious than ever. It's, like, how do we pre- – the, the goal in their mind at best is how do we present this kind of, like, thin veneer of a product mm-hmm. while still making it just uh, presentable enough – and minimize our screw-ups enough to where uh, we can still be someone that advertisers want to give money to. Because here's the other thing, and anyone who's remotely involved in the business, whether you're just posting social media for local news or whether you're an actual marketing person, there is still no actual idea as to, like, how well online advertising actually works. There's Mm -hmm. been talk of a bubble in it for, I mean, at least 10 years now, for definitely, uh, well, probably towards the end of the last decade. Um, and it's still, and it hasn't really popped or anything, but like, that is the dynamic that's going on is that, you know, there's still money coming in because nobody really knows that it's not working. Right. Yeah. The, the, the goal of, of these, uh, equity people as it is with any property they take over is quite literally that to take the value of the company, use that to acquire loans, uh, or, you know, to spread a debt around, uh, skim off the top and then, you know, sell what's left of the asset to, the next schnook down the line or the next uh, package for, you know, investment. The next genius. The next genius mm-hmm. who, who can save Deadspin. 
And, um, so uh, we'll, we'll see that again when we, we talk about baseball and uh, in the next segment. Uh, these these financialization firms are just gutting the last remnants of, of capitalism. I think one effect of this is that we're all getting used to getting crappier product. Like yeah. we, we all expect less and less and less, even from places like Sports Illustrated. Uh, like this is just going to become the new normal is what I'm saying. It's made me read less. Like I've become like more of like a skimmer, especially with online articles right. than I already was before because it's like, oh, and, like this isn't going to be great. And you just end up reading tweets. I mean the, yeah. the article about SI mentions that it's made me dumber, uh, I think it's the head of uh, the, the guy they've put in charge yeah. of Sports Illustrated mentions that, uh, you know, what people really care about is breaking news and it's – well, yeah, that's part of it, but you can get those off Twitter. You can get those off some kind of feed that's just very quick. If you read a magazine or a website for news beyond that, you read it to contextualize that. You read it for that writer. You read it for more in-depth stuff, and instead what they're doing is they're creating a landscape where that just doesn't exist, much the same way as uh, what's happening in local media is creating a landscape where you just cannot expect that local politicians will be held to account unless they do something sufficiently crazy enough that the local media can treat them as a clown. Yeah, I, I just want to wrap up with this example of genius from oh the boy. people running uh, Asaya. Salter later called back to emphasize that Maven is in compliance with its ABG contract. ABG is licensing SI to the Maven. Uh, he went on to say that SI is getting ready to launch a sports book, bar, and grill, and a betting website Ooh. next year that will partner with a stake, baby. gambling operator. The, the company has three big Super Bowl parties planned, he said. We have to become a lifestyle brand. Salter Here we said. go again. Whether I like James Heckman doesn't matter to this story, which is digitizing the business, and good things are happening. Punching Out's just been acquired by a private equity firm, and we are now <laughs> exclusively a gambling podcast, so bet the money line. I, I think it might be time to take a break from this topic. We'll be back with another set of geniuses after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to the Punching Out Genius Awards. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Welcome back to the pokies, y'all. Rich. Not a genius. And Chris. I can be a genius once in a while. Jeez. We've talked a lot about uh, a couple of sports-related uh, outlets in the last segment, and in this segment, we are moving in officially to the category of sports. Uh, even in the best of years, sports owners are bound to show signs of genius, but this has been a maybe not the best of years. Ask, this, ask any Knicks fan. This has been a year in which— Never ask me about that. Seems like every sports owner is looking for a way to showcase themselves as— the best of the best. They, they don't want the athletes to get all the glory in being geniuses. They, they want a share of that uh, fame as well. Really, we could go down the list of you know every commissioner, every owner as being a runner-up for this award, though we have a special request to acknowledge Gary Bettman. Yes, noted hell demon Gary Bettman, current commissioner of the NHL, is uh, just a very strong showing this year. For all of the shenanigans that he has undertaken to undermine the cause of women's hockey in the United States and Canada, up to and including founding entire competing leagues at a loss, <laughs> much like Deadspin and, and SI and so on, uh, to prevent an actually competitive, popular, yes. and profitable women's league that would treat its players better from existing, <laughs> yes, from existing outside the auspices of the NHL. Batman is famous for doing this within the NHL, constantly flooding the league with small market teams that will penny pinch and uh, generally complain about the original six getting all the money or whatever the heck it is that they do in Even those Even though meetings. there's a hard salary cap in hockey. Yeah. It's probably the hardest salary cap yep. in the four major sports. He doesn't care. Well, well that yeah. came about. After expansion, right. yes, he's he's famous for doing this within the NHL. But then suddenly, when it comes time to maybe have this league that can compete with them in in a slightly different arena, 
he's suddenly very much an opponent of expansion. It's kind of like a spiteful version of what the NBA did when they created the WNBA in mm-hmm. the 90s. Which that, that's the model Which is operated a loss yeah. for a long time, but they saw it as like, this is a, a benefit to the sport. This is a benefit to, to growing what we're trying to do. So they did what they could to build it. Right. Now, I don't know the details of maybe where the NBA has gone wrong with the WNBA, if they have. Um, but it's kind of like a like a dark version of that. Mm. It's like, no, we're going to create our own league and support it. But it was in the context of an, another league already existing mm-hmm. that had a lot more potential to be better. So it kind of like reduces the good of like what that kind of action is supposed to be. And I want to keep that in mind. Uh, the willingness to run a product at a loss for reputational or whatever other reasons you may have. I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about this segment. Yeah, not to lionize the past generation of owners, but it's the idea of having a long-term vision is seems so distant now because the new breed of owners and commissioners seem hell-bent on squeezing out whatever drops they can, not just in sports, but in as we discussed in the last segment from media outlets, what have you. The person we're honoring here as the genius of the year in sports is Rob Manfred, commissioner of Major League Baseball, who has had a very busy year trying— Five-tool genius. Trying to—I don't know what what you could say—almost undercut the sport's future in exchange (laughs) for uh, a few bucks now. Basically. Um, 80 galaxy brain, 80 profit motive, just across the board, uh, scout's dream of a commissioner— He's got, uh, I mean, his launch angle for some of these takes that we're about to get into. It's incredible. Just hard contact on everything. It's hard to know even where to begin, but um, just we're gonna try. chronologically speaking, in January, there was a story uh, that, quote, Major League Baseball wants exemption from Arizona's minimum wage laws. Reading from this article on azcentral.com, Major League Baseball wants Arizona lawmakers to ensure minimum wage laws don't apply to minor league players in the state, something the league recently accomplished at the federal level. Effectively, because Major League Baseball has this special antitrust exemption from Congress, they are afforded— from the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. They are afforded certain privileges like the ability to not have to worry about minimum wage laws because minor league players don't make enough to really cover what their hourly rate would be under the federal minimum wage. A, a lot of minor league players, uh, especially the, particularly at the lower levels, uh, actually pay to play. Uh, there was one I, – I, I should have found the tweet, but he, he posted his, uh, his end of the year pay stub and it was actually negative – um, money so compared yeah, to money. compared to what he had to pay to like travel and put into wow. like uh, nutrition and stuff like that to keep himself a viable Just major league prospect qu- quoting from the article minor league players who are contracted by their team's major league affiliate are paid as little as eleven hundred dollars a month and only when in season according to usa today P- players are not paid during spring training although they receive daily breakfast and lunch as well as a small stipend for living expense so they're like one step above the ncaa's restrictions this can cause a financial burden for players and their families so we think of baseball as this billion dollar industry this 10 billion dollar industry but at its lowest levels at levels that are closest to a lot of people because most people are not going to live in one of the you know, 28 or so cities that have an MLB team, minor league players are not living that sort of lifestyle at all. And we talked about this when we've done episodes on sports. Not every athlete is a millionaire, and there are reasons to be concerned about the labor struggles of athletes, even if you aren't necessarily worried about John Carlos Stanton's well-being. Especially in a sport where, I mean, when guys are coming up and they're entering the minor leagues, they're teenagers. Not yeah. not even just 18-year-olds or 19-year-olds, but sometimes 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Especially when, you know, you're talking about growing the game, when you're pulling guys from a lot of these international pools mm-hmm. um, in the Caribbean and in Central America, parts of South America, um, teams, and I mean, at least... I know like the Yankees have specific headquarters in some of these places and in some of these regions mm-hmm. where they're calling up kids from as young as 13 or 14 years old and starting to sign them to these early deals. You know, th- these are things that are supposed to be about growing the game. They're supposed to be about expanding the player base, expanding the people who are interested. Um, and when you throw them into a life where they have to scratch and claw 
um, for the ability to make any kind of money. At least it's almost like worse than what the NCAA is doing because the NCAA, um, as heinous as it is that they're not paying people, there is an infrastructure around you to where you can at least, you know, have some kind of, you have some kind of like a student life. You have, um, you know, meal plans. You don't have to pay tuition. You have their living situation set up. You don't even get that if you're one of these like low A clubs that Manfred's trying to get rid of or one of these international prospects who, you know, not only dealing with all this, you you probably don't know how to talk to a lot of your teammates, Mm -hmm. Um, especially once you get out of the lower levels and you're no longer around people who are exclusively from your country or from your region. So these are all things that kind of just are kneecapping the ability to not only expand the player base, but I think that ends up bleeding down to not expanding the fan base. Um, Because fans want to see, especially kids, um, which is when most people become fans and are hooked Mm -hmm. for life, um, they want to see people who look and and talk like them and feel like represent them or reflect them in some way. And you want, baseball wants to become more prevalent in communities that aren't aging and whiter by the year, seemingly, um, with attendance going down and ratings going down. Um, you know, these are the kind of problems you have, to, you, you have to operate some of these things at a loss for the sake of these kind of long-term goals. I, I would just add, uh, also, you know, MLB shows exactly what happens when private monopolies exist and exude too much power. Like baseball, when people say baseball is the American national pastime, that used to be true because every town, every neighborhood, every factory had a team. Those teams competed against each other in really fun games that communities would turn out to. And what happened over the past century is that Major League Baseball has squeezed those out of existence by focusing uh, everybody into its player development system. So every player into its player development system and every fan uh, exclusively into uh, watching Major League Baseball. So, I mean, there's a level of logic to that. Or it's I would, affiliated minor Or it's affiliated league. minor league teams. I mean, there's some logic to that. I'd, I guess people would rather watch Mickey Mantle hit dingers than uh, watch Joe Schmo from the factory, you know, run out a bunt. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a serious cost to uh, what Major League Baseball has done to baseball. And we're seeing it happen now. They're squeezing the sport even further and alienating uh, the fans who are its future players and future uh, consumers. I, I think it's important to know because an objection that I run into a lot when discussing this stuff with people is that they seem to think that somehow, I mean, we are uniquely raising Rob Manfred above the level of genius of the other big four commissioners, mm-hmm. but they seem to think... None of them are good. Yeah, none of them are good to begin with. But a lot of people, their objection seems to be essentially that Rob Manfred is not a sports guy, capital S, capital G. And there's something that I really hate about that particular objection. None of them really are, though. Even if they were, what does it matter? Like, Bud Selig was... It's never been a thing. It's like a made-up thing. Yeah. Not in recent times. What it is is a way to... Uh, it, it's essentially this guy is the current guy. He sucks the most because he's the one I'm most familiar with yeah. because he's there right now. But I think where I'm going with this is that all of these commissioners, they wouldn't be there if it if they weren't agreeing to be creatures of the owners. Like Rob Manfred was Bud Selig's guy, was his uh, economic hitman, was his agent this whole time. And, and Bud Selig got, was a baseball guy. Yeah. Like and, he's – well, compared to Rob Manfred, he was. Yeah. I mean, he, he was a guy who was involved in this sport and his, his whole life. Well, his predecessor called him a thief. And he still and, brought in a guy like that. Yeah. You know? Which, again, tells you something. Like, Bud Selig, yes, he made he said all the right things. But he was still, at heart, nothing but a boss in the, or in the category that we're rewarding right. here for some reason. Since uh, this January story about minimum wage, Major League Baseball has also sort of... I don't know whether it was announced or leaked. They're having negotiations with minor league baseball about the nature of the affiliation between those organizations and in which Major League Baseball has effectively threatened to um, cut like 40 or so minor league teams Mm -hmm. from across the country, which would remove these teams from their communities. It would... You know, cut costs for Major League Baseball, of course, the, the idea being that they will, you know, streamline the development process, which in theory makes them better or more efficient, but what, no, at what, what cost? What they're saying is that this is the only way they're going to be able to pay minor league players a fair wage. Mm-hmm. That was the argument that they made when they released that plan because minor league players have gotten, in, the, in MLB's <coughs> yeah. view, mouthier, as Rich was saying, in sharing – uh, just how much it's cost them to to play for these clubs, to put themselves out there, 
day after day, week after week, playing in many cases a season that is half or more to the length of Major League Baseball season and having some minor chance of ever breaking through and making it onto a a 40-man roster, at which point they finally get some piece of the pie. Major League Baseball's response to that was to say, well, obviously we're not going to spend money on paying these players fairly because that runs counter to everything that we know and uh, love as capitalists. So instead, we're going to pit players against each other. What we're going to say is we're going to put these three general managers in charge of figuring out how we can screw over 42 cities so that we can then turn around to minor league players and go, here's your choice. You can either have more teams – and, and have more chances to sort of exhibit and so on, or you can get paid. Yeah. And the negotiations have gotten so heated that, like, Major League Baseball, uh, in a statement, uh, said that it, th- it threatened to simply drop any agreement with minor league baseball and presumably start its own minor league system by bypassing minor league baseball entirely. Quote, if the National Association of minor league clubs has an interest in agreement with Major League Baseball, it must address the very significant issues with the current system at the bargaining table. Otherwise, MLB clubs will be free to affiliate with any minor league team or potential team in the United States, including independent league teams in cities which are not permitted to compete with for an affiliate under the current agreement. It is threatening to nuke minor league baseball, in effect. And so just to explain, in case uh, listeners don't know, Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball are technically separate organizations. Uh, Major League Baseball provides minor league teams with players. They pay the salaries. They pay the coaches' salaries. And Minor League Baseball, in exchange, provides the, the stadiums and the you know brings fans to the seats, et cetera. Um, and so what Major League Baseball is threatening to do here is uh, dissolve that relationship entirely and take down the, the the kind of weird structure of minor league baseball with it. I think like the context of baseball specifically compared to what you might see in the other sports too is not only the kind of you know relatively convoluted farming <coughs> development system that baseball has compared to even hockey, which has a similar structure but it's more condensed. Is that you know this is at least I view this as like a backlash to like years of like pretty strong player union. Um, action for the last few decades, right? And that, that never really bled down to minor league players, obviously. Um, but there, there was never really a whole lot of division to exploit. Um, and actually, one of the selling points to you know, because there's so many sports that are um, popular now and have a lot. If you're a very athletic young person, um, you have multiple options. Whereas you know, 40, 50 years ago, it was like baseball, boxing. You know, maybe pro football was popping up by and then. That's, and baseball is the one that's not going to give you brain damage. Right, and not going to give mm-hmm. you brain damage, and it's the one that's going to give you a fully guaranteed contract. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's still the case for now, but the, the the financial aspect of it and the compensation you're getting, I feel like this could be the start of starting to whittle away okay. some, some of what's going on, even though they have more revenues than ever. I, I think you're not the only person who's seeing it that way. Well, Ryan? Uh, just going to read this NBC Sports headline from November. Rob Manfred tells MLBPA there will be no economic concessions for labor peace. Uh, the current collective bargaining contract expires at the end of next season, I believe. Mm-hmm. And effectively what MLB is saying is that the players are going to take a cut. That There is not going to be any sort of concession given to them in these upcoming negotiations. Manfred said, quote, There's not going to be a deal where we pay you in economics to get labor peace. Manfred also told union representatives that maybe Marvin Miller's financial system doesn't work anymore. That's uh, the system of free agency, effectively, where Mm -hmm. players at the end of their rookie deals can sign with new teams and negotiate better contracts. Baseball players became millionaires. Yeah, millionaires and and had the kind of wealth that's greater than – proportionally to other athletes and even other sports that are more popular like the NFL and the NBA. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and also because they, because of the whole non-brain damage thing, also they had a better chance for a longer lasting career. Yeah. Uh, No matter what position you play, which is not true in um, especially football. The thing about this is this is what you do when you are convinced that you are holding all the cards. And it is very hard, given some of the things that we've talked about on this very show, it is very hard to disabuse uh, someone like Manfred of that notion. Okay, so you might not know what an antitrust exemption does for MOB. Basically, this is what it does. 
when they talk about independent baseball leagues, those baseball leagues, to some extent, exist only because of the forbearance and toleration, or tolerance, sorry, of Major League Baseball. The, there is a nominally independent baseball league right now that Major League Baseball just screws with to introduce changes halfway through its season for no other reason than because it can. Mm-hmm. If there were no such thing as a monopoly afforded to Manfred and his cronies, then this would not be a possibility. Or at the very least, it would be much tougher for the sport to do it. There would have to be more concessions made. But because Major League Baseball is allowed to monopolize that sport, that product, they are in fact allowed to do that essentially for free. That's why they're willing to say things like, we will completely walk away from 160 cities and towns in the entire United States and go build our own league. Because they know that in any such negotiation, the presumption of power will always be with them. Not just factually, but legally. And and they can get away with this because in large measure, their wealth and pros- profits don't depend on them fielding a competitive baseball team or fielding a baseball yeah. team at all. Uh, it's the same thing with all the other financialization uh, regimes we've been talking about this week and last week is uh, their wealth depends on their equity and their teams. And so the Yankees or you know, the they, Giants. They own valuable real estate. Multi-billion and, like, dollar teams. Downtown and areas. They own valuable real estate, but also what they own is that they deliver a live product, something people have to tune into to watch when it's on, which is uh, the only – sports are really the only thing that promises that anymore. And so they can sell that with really out, – out any really regard for the quality of the product anymore. Um, and so they can also, because of that, sit on their wealth, wait out the players because uh, at the end of the day, it's the same old story between capital and labor. Capital – is dead labor. It exists for as long as they hoard it. Labor has a finite lifespan. Even outside of these uh, collective bargaining, you know, negotiation tactics, you're seeing a real downward pressure on players, player salaries, even as the league's revenue goes up. It's players are making less while the league makes more. And that's not supposed to happen even under the existing CBA. Right. But no doubt that the league will attempt to enshrine it in any future. You're still seeing like those kind of top level deals, right? I mean, the Garrett Cole deal, obviously, Anthony Rendon. But but the rest of the market is just not there. You're getting guys who are like all-star quality who may not be these uh, ascendant talents. Like those Mm -hmm. kind of guys are World Series MVP or Cy Young type talents. And, you know, the market, last year we actually had an episode Mm -hmm. on how all of the guys were getting frozen out. Yeah. That's hasn't really happened this way, but those top level guys mm-hmm. are getting paid and they're getting paid around the time that they normally have. But you still have so many other guys who could fill out a major league roster just by themselves mm-hmm. um, who are just sitting there. And, you know, like we said, it's kind of like all of the other aspects of the economy where there's so many other ways to make money now that it requires even more cooperation among the players, <laughs> among or among any other kind of organized worker to kind of counter, like, to resort sooner to the tactic of just withholding your labor. So if anything, it makes it, it could make it more likely that there's some kind of a player strike or a lockout because the leverage is not so much on the side of the players anymore because there's so many other ways, even like we said, with declining attendance, with declining ratings, there's so many ways to make money now if you're one Mm -hmm. of these large entities, especially if you're a legally sanctioned monopoly, that... It doesn't scare you as much if the players are talking tough during negotiations unless they take it to the extreme. Yeah, I don't I don't think Major League Baseball is scared at all, which is hopefully their weakness, right? right. Like they can somehow be t- that that might be the one chance like that the players that have. That quote about not trading, you know, paying you more in exchange for labor peace, that means they're willing to take on a strike. That means yeah. the owners are bracing for that fight. They are ready to have that fight. And well, they, they think they'll win that fight. Yes. More and importantly. The thing is you look at um so full disclosure, Astros fan in the room. But when the sign stealing controversy came out, mm-hmm. and it looked for a while like this was going to be the Did new you mean when pi- they cheated, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, when they when it looked like this was going to be the new Pittsburgh drug trials that they were going to drag everyone in to figure out which teams were doing it and so on. My first thought was, well, the Pittsburgh drug trials were a cover for collusion. 
<laughs> and they had the exact same structure. MLB re- would reward players for coming forward and snitching on other players. They wanted to ensure that no player felt that they were being punished for coming forward. And then in the end, they chose not to do that, which was interesting to me. I guess they decided that that was not the valuable strategy to go with this time. And I think that might be because they have successfully sold the idea. I mean, we see this with uh, the the dichotomies between union workers and non-union workers. We see they've successfully sold the idea that these athletes are just getting such a better deal than you that you, as Joe Schmo, have no identification with them. They are, to you, they are on a completely different plane. And as we've always said on this show, the reason you should care is precisely because they're trying to make that division happen. They're trying to draw a distinction that in the end is not actually going to exist. They've, they've pitched fans on the process, the idea that, you know, we're not, we're not actually trying to win baseball now, but in three years, we're going to have a pretty good setup here. When even just a couple decades ago, you talk about something like uh, Moneyball, this famous uh, Billy Bean's efforts mm-hmm. to make the A's good. They were trying to win. They just had limited resources or were constrained by what the owner was willing to spend. I was going to say, that's the difference. Because I think owners for the past two years have been essentially pulling their pockets out and pretending to be poor. Right. Now it's The thing is, people have seen it like on the Mm -hmm. field eventually work, though, right? I mean, those same Astros were a a prime example of the... The the model of this generation, the last five, ten years, or this decade. Everybody is trying to follow what they did. They right? were uh, losing 100 games for a couple of years in a row. They made it very clear, and they were honest about it, that that's what they're doing. They mm-hmm. hired, like, a fall guy manager. I don't even remember his name. And then they moved on to who they have now. And it just became, you know, they, they acquired talent, and they promised mm-hmm. everyone that they were doing that, and it worked. Well, what worked about it is that the economic system of baseball keep, artificially keeps player costs low for seven there years. It is. Yep. And so it's basically arbitrage. They're taking advantage of a broken system mm-hmm. and a failed union uh, to keep player costs low. And then as soon as players break out of that, those rookie contracts, uh, you see what happens in the last offseason with Dallas Keuchel and Craig Kimbrell. Teams just don't pay them. Yep. They, they decide, well, you know, these are great players, but uh, we don't want great players. We want good, affordable players. Mm-hmm. And we want, particularly, we want good, affordable players that, like, we're going to keep for a couple of years. And then, like you said, send them on to the next schnook down the line who hopes that they can make something out of it. So that's that's the hard part of convincing fans. Now, now when it comes to relating to player salaries and getting fans mm-hmm. to at least try and side with the players to some degree, you know, I always just say, like, well, where's the money supposed to go? You know, when yeah, people right. talk about and it immediately shuts down any conversation. But then... When you're talking about a franchise building process, yeah, there's been too many times recently, especially in baseball, where fans have seen it work to maybe turn fans against that method. But you're, you also see a lot of examples. You remember the examples that work. You don't remember right. what the Mariners have been doing for two decades or right. what the or Pirates the White, have the done. White Sox. Or the Orioles. Mm-hmm. Well, the, and, Orioles, and the Orioles were They had a, a brief upsurge, at least. Yeah. Right? Like, they were almost but, in the But World the playoffs series. were... Yeah. They're such a crapshoot that right. just... You can do all the right decisions and still not win a World Series, and nobody will remember you. I think what you're, you might see a corner turning now because you have traditionally bigger. Th- this is an teams. argument I've seen, especially from say former Deadspin writers, which is owners have sacrificed the idea that just watching a you know ninety win team might be something people want to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know they have all uh, glommed onto this idea. Winning's that fun. Yeah. That the only thing fans care about is like one championship every twelve years, and they can, and they will gladly trade eleven years where the team is just unwatchable and not even trying to succeed in exchange for that. But I don't know if that's true for most fans. I don't like, think it is. There's real value in just being able to turn on the game and hey, look, the team's winning. The team is doing well. I like these players. And that, that's 11 years of kids who aren't watching successful, fun baseball or right. fun whatever sport that are lost forever because that's when you become a fan. And I would tie it back to what we talked about in the last segment. It is once again getting us used to crappier product. It, it is once again telling us because in a in a league that still had a strong union that had better union leadership that was willing to take the fight to the owners more often – in recent years, I think you'd have less of a chance for things like tanking to occur. 
um, because ultimately that's what happens when it's more affordable to do that than to do the money ball approach or to do what the Yankees have done because they have to field a competitive team, you know? That, right, because that's the right because that's part of like the fan attitude. Exactly, right? exactly. Like there's more of a pressure, and I think on a league-wide basis, I think you might because of how egregious it's getting mm-hmm. um, this off-season in particular. You're seeing guys like John Henry, um, who owns you know the, one the or Red two Sox. Boston can, newspapers. Can I complain about this? Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> they're known to spend it. big. Let's they, go. The Indians are kind of known to spend the, big. The, they're doing the same thing. The idea that the Red Sox can't afford Mookie Betts, who is one of the best players in the American League, is he was MVP. Ju- it's ludicrous. The Red yeah. Sox are one of the most valuable franchises in baseball, probably second only to the Yankees, maybe the Cubs. They are, they have the money. You know, they the owners also own a soccer the Cubs team. Are doing it too. They can spend yep. on talent. They're they're just choosing not to, and they're trying to sell this idea that they can't afford Mookie Betts and JD I Martinez when they afforded them two years ago. I think you might see it turn a little bit, hopefully at least, when because now these bigger, traditionally bigger teams are now starting to take part in this kind of attitude in a league where everybody knows there's no salary cap, right? Now, if you were in a salary cap league, now the bigger teams can get away with doing that. Um, you know, my team in hockey, the Rangers, it, they sent out a letter to their fans a couple years ago saying, hey, we're going to rebuild. These are going to be the tougher times that we've had in the last 15 years, and we have to shed some salary because there's a cap. Whereas you see the Cubs, the Red Sox, the Indians, who are marginally less valuable than those two teams, are embarking on this austerity program. And I think it's more egregious than what you've been seeing. And these are teams that were in the World Series two, three years ago. They're not teams that people are used to seeing do this kind of thing, like the Mm -hmm. Rays or or secondary big market teams like the White Sox or the Mets, who people don't really expect to, like, land big guys. Now now owned by a hedge fund goal, by the way, the Mets. So that'll that'll be interesting. What we're saying here is that uh, the people running Major League Baseball have, I mean, they're committed to the idea that baseball needs fixing from itself, which is, I don't know if that's true. Add a pitch clock, you know. (laughs) That's all I'm asking Uh, for. Let's not. (laughs) It's, there's this idea that, so... I, I forget who mentioned this. I think it was Barry Pachowski mentioned this in the de- in the article about Deadspin, but said that when Spanfeller came in, he seemed to have this idea that we needed fixing by someone older and richer mm-hmm. than us. And I think that's what you're seeing. Again, it, it goes all back to this. These owners are the same as feudal lords, are the same as the patrons of great merchant houses. It's the same as, Chris, what you were talking about in the last one. They need everything to be a reflection of their personality. And they are incapable of remembering that for years and decades, uh, rich people have run things like baseball teams at a loss because it makes you look good. Yeah. It makes you part of the community. People care. People care about that sort of thing. thing yeah, right? the, like, the idea that baseball is anything more than just another way to make money is lost. It, it's, yeah. it used to be have it used to have grander ambitions for itself. It's part of a portfolio as a national yeah. national pastime. Yeah, and instead, what it's it's be, it's becoming subject to all of the same pressures as everything else that we talk about basically all the time in this show. Uh, which particularly sucks because it's, as a sport, designed to resist those pressures as much as possible. For sports in general, like the last, you know, the last common things that you can just talk about with strangers, at least in the U.S. or in, maybe in Canada, too. I was going to say sports, also known as American culture. <laughs> yeah, it's like part of, you know, it's like one of the last, like, civic things that we all share and do together. And it's even even before it was one of those last things, it's still something that's part of, like, are the commons, right? It's something that's a part of every city's identity. Maybe its economic impacts are overstated a lot of times by these Mm -hmm. teams, but it's still something that's a part of what makes these cities tick um, and what makes people feel like they're a part of something bigger, Mm. um, whether you like a team that lives with you or not. And the more it becomes a part of this kind of financialized structure where the revenue is coming from things that aren't the sport itself, um, where the players that are actually a part of it have less and less power and the fans have to see worse and worse products, um, you get situations like this where you might have the sport itself become completely disrupted, it's starting to look mm. like. Looking at the clock, that's we're not going to have time to get to all of the other geniuses of 2019. I don't know if we'll There's come so back next week with you know? <laughs> more of them. 
We want to thank you for listening to us over the past year. It's uh, This will air on New Year's Day, so Happy New Year to everybody who's listening. Hey, Happy New Year. Um, we hope that the year 2020 offers just as many geniuses for us to talk about. We're, we're sure it will. I can't wait for the second annual pogies. I would like fewer geniuses as a socialist, uh, just for the record. Yeah. Socialized genius. Just um, the commonality. Just uh, if just, you come let's across, let's strive to become geniuses. Let's not. That's what we should try and do. <laughs> if you come across somebody who you think deserves our mockery, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. You can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail dot com. In the year to come, we hope to provide a lot more good radio for you to listen to. For this week, though, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. Rich. Chris. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.